Charger fans are witnesses to history. This is the Lightning Round Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Sisti and Jamie Hoyle. Go Chargers, go! The Lightning Round Podcast is back for episode 158. I am Garrett Sisti, which is the same on Twitter. Jamie is at lightning underscore round. And we're going to get into some important headlines following the Chargers' 29-27 win over the 49ers. But let's give some mentions to a couple of donors this week. Big shout-out goes out to Adrian Alberto Buelna Rivera for his donation. Thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate the generous donation coming from Tijuana um, and the nice comment you sent us as well. Also, Stephen Pisano, thank you very much for your donation. Like we always say, we appreciate all of you for listening, interacting, whoever you do, rating us on iTunes. If you send donations, it's all good. So thank you all very much for the continued support and for giving us a reason to continue coming back and doing this show every week for you. Yeah, thank you, Adrian Steven. Attached some really nice notes to their donations this week. So thank you, especially to you guys, for the kind words as well. And Adrian Listening in Tijuana. Thank you. Appreciate it. So um, we got a couple questions before we get into these headlines. And our first one is a call we got. And if you want to send in questions, do it in through the app, Lightning Round Podcast app. You can uh, send us emails. You can also send us voicemails. We'd love to hear your voice. So here's one from Anthony. Hey, guys. Anthony from Orange County, a.k.a. Steezy Jesus, a.k.a. That's So Chargers on Twitter. My question is something that Lynn addressed today in his press conference, the fact that he isn't willing to play Lamp because it would require two moves on the offensive line instead of one, assuming he's meaning playing Lamp at right guard and Schofield at left tackle. Do you guys think this is a valid argument, being that the shakeup on the offensive line could be detrimental to the overall play? I know Schofield has been playing pretty well, but the thought of Tevi and Scott as the tackles right now is terrifying to me. We'd love to know your thoughts. I think there's something more going on with with Lamp. You know, there was a quote from um, from the the post practice press conference today where Coach Lynn was talking about, you know, basically he Lamp doesn't feel like he's at a hundred percent and. They want to get him back out there when he's 100% and he's getting more confident every day, but he's not quite there yet. And it just seems like there's still something weird going on with that knee. And I feel like the whole, I don't want to make two moves for the sake of getting Lamp into the lineup. I think that's kind of, he's just covering for whatever's going on with that bad knee. I think the root of this is all that they don't feel, either Lamp doesn't feel he's at 100% or the team doesn't feel he's at 100%. Or they don't like something they're seeing in practice, so they're just not feeling the urgency to get him on the field. And assuming he's going to come back and he's going to be healthy at some point, it's hard to fault them for playing it slow with the guy that they liked enough to take in the first round last year. Uh, they got him in the second, but there was talk that they thought about taking it, trading back and taking him in the first round. So to take it slow with him, give, give him a chance to get fully healthy and come back after you know he's only, what, four months, three months removed from a, from a second knee surgery. So to take it slow with him is not a bad thing, but you know, with all this, with all the moves they're making on the line right now with, you know, moving Tevi to left tackle and bringing Scott into right tackle, it seems like if he's healthy, he'd be out there. So I just, I just think that they're, they're dealing with it. They're giving him some cover dealing with the knee injury 
and waiting for him to feel like he's at 100% with that knee. I happen to agree with you, Anthony, talking about Trent Scott and Sam Tevy and not have not being comfortable with them. I, I don't I'm not either. I mean, they actually held up pretty well against the 49ers, but and the Raiders have actually a worse pass rush, if you can believe that. So <laughs> uh, so that's good news. But yeah, I'm not comfortable with Tevy or Scott. And uh, no, obviously, you can't not make a move because it's one extra move than you're comfortable making. It's just shifting two plays around. It's not it's not the end of the world. You're not shifting your whole line. But it just sounds like Lamp isn't feeling comfortable with his right knee. And, and and that's basically the reason why. I mean, you know, him saying, yeah, I don't want to sh- move Schofield out to right tackle and we're going to stick with Tevy and Scott, all that doesn't matter. That's, you know, for the press. What's more important is that they want to slow roll Lamp and he's not comfortable with his right knee. Lamp isn't. So that's, you know, they're not going to roll with him until he's healthy. So, you know, they're not comfortable with throwing him out there. He's not comfortable playing. And that's really the root of this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody's really comfortable with, with Tevi and Scott at the tackle positions. Uh, if ever there is a week where you might be able to slide with it and give them a little extra help and get away with it, it's probably this week against the Raiders because <laughs> yep. their pass rush is really bad. Yep, good timing. <laughs> so it, it works out in that regard. Uh, and maybe they're just trying to stretch him out and get him back closer to the bye week and just give him a few extra weeks. And this is something that... You know, we talked about in the preseason. I said that if he wasn't ready to play by the second preseason game, that there was a good chance we would not see him through the first four or five games of the year. And here we're through the first four games. He hasn't played. It sounds like he's at least another week or two away from playing, if not more. So like Garrett said, they're slow rolling him. They're trying to take it easy with him, get him back out there when he's healthy. You know, part of me wonders if maybe he tweaked something or re-injured that knee uh, when he played in basically the entire fourth preseason game. So... There are some questions there, which we're probably not going to get answered, but it's definitely got something to do with that injured knee, and hopefully he's healthy soon because more than two or three weeks of Scott and and uh, Tevi at the tackle position is not a very comforting thought. No, no. All I can think of is when they lined up Nadamik and Suda at the wide at the wide nine <laughs> and just let him go one on one with Trent Scott. That was ugly. Yeah, it was not pretty, and they actually tried to do that a couple times. The Niners did on Sunday with Scott, and he held up reasonably well. Yeah, obviously it wasn't Nam Kong Su, but I thought they did they did a, they did some good work protecting those guys. They gave him help with extra tight ends. They ran the ball more than they probably wanted to, trying to get them moving downhill and let them just be athletes and lean on people. Didn't ask them to cover for too long, kind of shorten the routes. Uh, tried more of a more of a controlled passing game. So there are ways that you can help them, but. Nobody wants to see those guys be at tackle for more than a week or two. So the next question comes from Michael Lawson. He says, how have the defensive tackles, excluding Legit, performed so far through the first few games? Um, I think Darius Phylon, hands down, has been the best defensive lineman, regardless of position on the team, for the first four weeks. Uh, A close second is probably Damian Square, in my opinion. I think he's been pretty reliable and pretty consistent through the first four games and the game that he had we're going to talk about this when we get to our storylines i'm sure but the game that he had this week against the 49ers where they moved him to base defensive end uh his natural position by the way um he he was phenomenal he was one of the key elements in, in slowing down the niners running game he they moved him inside in sub packages he got some pressure on the interior he played extremely well he and Phylon have by far been the most disruptive defensive linemen on the roster so far um and then you start kind of working your way down the death chart i think uh brandon brandon mebane 
has been up and down. He's had a few good plays, uh, one or two really good plays in each game, but he's also gotten pushed around at times. He's had a hard time holding his holding his ground and and really plugging in those lanes. And I think Justin Jones has flashed. He hasn't played a ton of snaps, uh, but he's shown some abilities to make plays on the goal line in the running game. He's he's flashed as an interior pass rusher a couple times, so he's looked good in spots, but he has not put it together consistently over 30 or 40 snaps in a, in a game. But he's showing signs of being able to be, at the very least, a run stuffer and a playmaker in the running game uh, in the middle of that line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with all that. I think, you know, Meebane for the last two games has played much better than his first two games. He had that nice sack against the Rams, pretty good tackle for a loss uh, on Sunday against 49ers. But, you know, up and down. Darius Phylon has gotten a lot of penetration, few tackles for a loss. We've seen uh, Justin Jones seems to be improving each week. You know, each week it seems like you see 91 pop a little bit more mm-hmm. with each game. And then Damian Square obviously had the best game, uh, at least this season, uh, against the 49ers. Maybe his whole career. He was great against the 49ers. Um, you know, I think if you're looking at it big picture, this is obviously a position group they're going to have to fix again in the offseason. I feel like we do that every every year but uh <laughs> we've been saying yeah. that for three years <laughs> but uh <laughs> through four games they've been okay i mean the, you know outside of letting todd Gurley run loose a little bit they've really done well at least a lot better than expected in the uh, run defense so a couple of those games went a little bit different than expected but uh they did pretty good you know containing matt Breida for under 50 yards was impressive on sunday so you know there's been some up and down um but there's been some flashes from a lot of these guys yeah and i would agree with your comments on jones i felt like he he probably had his best game on Sunday against the 49ers and he seems to be kind of fighting finding his footing and playing a little bit better every week still not consistent but like you said popping a little bit more frequently uh, from week to week so that that's an encouraging sign yeah the next question is from Dave Bernal and he says is it time to get worried about Forrest Lamp why hasn't he seen any playing time well we talked about a little bit earlier he's not comfortable with the right knee I don't know if it's time to worry like Hey, they're going to shut him down for the year, but uh, it's you can't be comfortable with the situation. I mean, the fact that he's been a quote unquote healthy scratch for four weeks in a row is not promising. Uh, you know, they don't. It's not even that they don't want to get him in the starting lineup yet. It's that they don't even want him as depth right now. They're not comfortable. Seems like Lamp isn't comfortable. But the thing that's more concerning is. Lamp being in his own mind, you know, Lynn said something, and I'm paraphrasing something like Lamp's got to get his mind right before he gets out there, and that's a little worrisome, you know. When the coach is afraid to play you because of their mental state, that's that's pretty bad. But you know, you just got to play it by ear. He was impressive at that last preseason game. Maybe he injured himself during that game, and it's kind of extended this, you know, having to sit longer than anybody's expected. But you know, he's been inactive for four weeks. It's hard to not be troubled by that yeah there's just something weird going on you know i kind of hinted at it earlier that they were talking about um you know him not being 100 percent. and i don't know if it's the team that feels he's not 100 percent, or he feels he's not 100 percent, or some combination thereof but there was also a weird exchange in the media a couple weeks ago i think it was after week one or after week two where uh somebody asked anthony lynn about forrest lamp and he basically said well he doesn't feel quite right. He's not really ready to be on the field. We're just waiting until he tells us he's ready to go. And then Lamp 
either before that or right after that without knowing what Lynn had said, came out and said, I feel good. I feel ready. The coaches will let me know when they're ready for me to play. I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines. And then he heard what Lynn said, and he said, yeah, you know, I'm just not really quite ready yet. So there's something weird going on where either one party or both parties feels like he's not there yet. And then you get the comment today about, you know, he needs to figure out how to play where he's less than 100%. And it kind of sounds like he's having some confidence issues with that knee maybe. I mean, he is a 300-pound lineman. He's got to be able to rely rely on his knee to hold up and hold that weight as he's anchoring and trying to block other 300-pound linemen. So there is that. Uh, his knees get put under a lot of stress so that we we all understand that. But there's just something something's off about this situation and it just feels like the chargers are hiding something. And I don't know if that's me reacting to what's been going on with Bosa, but it just feels like we're not getting the whole story one way or another. Yeah. It's, it's strange for sure. And we're not going to get any answers anytime soon. Um, until he's out on the field, you know, we're never going to find out what actually happened. Next question is from McLean. Michael, we got this one in the chat. What is everyone's confidence in Lynn right now? It seemed last year he really righted the ship late do you believe he will do it again this year? I so want to support Anthony Lynn and give him the benefit of the doubt and like him and feels like and feel like he's the man for the job. And I said last year that I thought he would be, and he showed some signs of figuring some things out and making some adjustments to the way he approaches and manages the game. Uh, but it seems like he's backslid and he's right back to the point where he was early last year where he can't figure out if he wants to be aggressive or passive, if he wants to go for it on fourth down or punt on fourth down. That just seems like there's no consistency or congruity to what he wants to do. He's up and down, it seems like, by the minute. And this is one of the points I was going to hit on uh, during our storylines. But even in Sunday's game, it's a perfect example. He had nine or ten chances to make aggressive decisions and put the game away. And one minute he'd be making an aggressive decision, the next minute he'd be punting. And it just just doesn't add up. And it feels like he's – his – feel for the game isn't there and he just doesn't know who he wants to be or what he wants the team to be and that's a little alarming and the the short the shortcomings in game management and decision making and clock management are all worrisome because he's now 20 games in and he hasn't figured them out so hopefully he figures them out and he makes some adjustments but man there are a lot of very alarming developments uh, or consistencies in the way he does things that really bother me because he's just not learning from mistakes or he doesn't recognize the mistakes that he's making either way not a good thing you know you really really want to like lynn um but sometimes it's it's hard and it's been hard this year again it's kind of more like a wait and see approach you know you like you feel like he's doing the right things going into games and then he starts off strong like a fourth down sneak with philip rivers i mean you can't get more aggressive than that Depending on old Philip Rivers to get you a half a yard. Ooh, that, now that's aggressive. But, uh, you know, it just seems like the same problems are plaguing this team. And, you know, we'll probably get into a lot of this, but, um, you know, just the way they're playing, it seems like, you know, these gimme games that we had kind of talked about that we thought they would win and roll over teams might be a little bit harder than we thought. And, uh, you know, look, they, they ended up getting the win and that's what counts, but, you know, I don't know. I don't. I don't think this team's ever going to blow anybody out this year. It just doesn't seem like they're the type that'll step on any team's throat. I mean, we'll see. Maybe they. Maybe they get that way later in the year. But uh, so far, you know, the Chargers have won the games that they should have. 
but not pretty, but they have. So results good. I'm just still skeptical on Lynn. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to be. You've got, like I mentioned, the game management, clock management, decision-making process that's been fl- pretty flawed on a pretty consistent basis since he started. And then you've also got some issues with a guy who's supposed to be a disciplinarian, a guy whose thing is supposed to be about holding people accountable, not holding people accountable for making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And it's just like, well, let's just go ahead and get into it then because you're already starting to roll into it. Let's, let's just go ahead and start talking about (laughs) headlines and let's talk about Lynn. All right. So my, this is going to be my second headline, but we'll go, we'll go with it as my first. And it's, it starts with the decision-making and then I'll kind of lead into some of the, the inconsistencies with the way he holds people accountable. But I've got several examples of how he managed or as the case may be mismanaged this game and how he's sending confusing messages about how important a game may be or how important a situation may be. So just follow along and tell me if you feel like this is a game where the coach might feel a sense of urgency to win and go two and two, or if he's not all that concerned about winning and maybe he's not worried about going one and three. So it starts at 9 minutes and 37 seconds of the first quarter, the play that Garrett referred to earlier, fourth and one, where it seemed like Philip wanted to go for it and Lynn maybe didn't. They run the clock down, call a timeout. Philip goes to the sideline. They come out of the break. They go for it on fourth and one from their own 46-yard line, down 7 nothing after having just forced a San Francisco punt. Then, two and a half minutes later, first quarter, they have the ball fourth and three from their own 36, still down seven points, still in the exact same situation they were in when they went for it on their side of the 50-yard line. What do they do? They kick a field goal, a 54-yard field goal that their quarter, that their kicker misses after they've repeatedly, through the first three games, made decisions that, you know what, we're not really comfortable with him kicking 50-plus-yard field goals right now, so we're not going to go there. Here, after having gone for it on a fourth down already, they decide to kick it, and he misses it wide right then at the end of the first quarter after scoring a touchdown after he's already missed one kick and he's it's no doubt inside of his head with 43 seconds in the first quarter they try a pat to tie the game at 14 he misses the kick actually that that i'm sorry that pat would have made it 14 7 then at 47 46 seconds of the second quarter they're down two after having scored another touchdown and they decide to go for two Obviously not trusting their kicker. They convert it, make it 17-14. 33 seconds later, they get the ball back on their 32 after a fantastic punt return by Des King. What do they do? They run it on first down, throw the ball behind the line of scrimmage on second down, and settle for the field goal, the tying field goal, with eight seconds or five seconds left or whatever it was um, in the half in a situation where they've got three wide receivers who are 6'2 or taller, one in particular who's supposed to, whose specialty is supposed to be the jump ball in the red zone, and they didn't take a single shot downfield with two, with two timeouts. That settling for the field goal there, which is what they were doing from the start, just makes zero sense to me. You can't convince me that was the right move. Then at 10 minutes and 35 seconds of the third quarter, after scoring a touchdown, after their kicker has already missed two kicks and they've already gone for two once, what do they do? They kick the extra point. And what happens? He misses the kick. 744 the third quarter they have the ball on a fourth and five after a san francisco fumble on special teams and rather than trying to put the game away what do they do they kick a field goal to keep it a tight game 
And at 357 in the fourth quarter, this is the one that really pissed me off. They've got a fourth and three, no, fourth and one from the San Francisco 37, a chance to run the ball up the middle with Phillip, maybe give the ball to Watt, try to pick up a first down. I'm sure there's a bevy of plays they could run to pick up one yard. And what do they do? They decide to punt it from the 37-yard line and give the ball back to the 49ers, even though the defense has already given up a couple long passing plays and has struggled at times in the second half. So here you have this up and down of, okay, this is important. We need to go for it. Eh, let's be passive and kick the field goal. All right. This is important. We need to pick, we need to kick it. All right. Here, here we go. We're important. We're going to go for two. It's just up and down over and over and over again. No consistency in how he's calling the game. No consistency in at all and how he's interpreting the importance of the game with a team that's on, that could potentially be going one and three. And then you've got guys like Emmanuel making the same mistakes over and over again. You've got guys like Jill Adai making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And there is no repercussions, no punishment. Nobody's coming off the field. They just keep rolling with the same guys over and over again and not making any changes, not holding anybody accountable. So it's, it's getting hard to watch. It's extremely frustrating. I hope he straightens it out, but I'm starting to have a hard time giving the benefit of the doubt that he will. Hello. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. Yeah, you know, that's funny because uh, that's actually something I want to talk about too, and accountability is a word that popped up in my head a lot too. And you mentioned it, and for me, the biggest one is Jalil Die. You know, I, I just don't know how long this coaching staff can keep running Jalil Die at free safety and not only running him at free safety, but then giving him a pass as well. You know, last week there was just the abundance of missed tackling, which we had talked about in the last podcast. He took that piss poor angle on Todd Gurley for the touchdown this week in coverage. He was just in a constant state of disarray. It seemed like, you know, the first offensive touchdown was an absolute hatchet job by a die. He began to play. It was, you know, they were at the two yard line and a die basically play, was playing eight, nine yards back in the end zone, mm -hmm. and Adai bites on the play fake, leaves Casey Hayward one-on-one -on -one with Kendrick Bourne on the quick slant. Bourne catches that pass at the exact same spot where Adai began that play. Like the like frame for frame, the exact G in the Los Angeles in the back of the end zone, where he was standing is where that ended. And then, of course, that 82-yard touchdown pass to the tight end George Kittle, that was just the worst, man. <laughs> like he was too late to come down in coverage. Then he gets turned around and outran by a tight end. The whole sequence would get probably, you know, some players benched. Uh, some players get their snaps cut down or at least benched the very next defensive drive. Jaleel Adai was the only player on defense who played every single snap on Sunday. To be honest, and I, I think just to be fair on this, I think it's more the coaching staff than it is a die because 
Free safety is not Jaleel Dye's strength. You cannot leave your worst tackling DB as your last line of defense. It just can't happen. And then you saw, like on the Kittle touchdown, a die can't run with anybody in space. So a die is your strong safety, period. But with the way Derwin James is playing, being the Chargers' best defender on the field, and maybe one of the Chargers' more impactful players on the team, you can't move him away from the line of scrimmage. But what I don't understand is... If Adai's being as bad as he is, why not try out Rayshon Jenkins? He was the starter going in it during preseason. Why not see what you have in him? I think, you know, today Jalil Adai is a better player than Rayshon Jenkins from the little I've seen from Rayshon. But I think Jenkins is a better fit at free safety than Adai is. And you don't know unless you try. So I think you got to start working to Rayshon Jenkins at free and see if he can get anything going. And, you know, the coaching staff has got to realize that Adai isn't suited to play free safety. The coaching staff is liable on this. I don't blame Adai at all because he's getting a pass and they're not keeping him accountable at all. And, you know, you kind of mentioned another name like Kyle Emanuel I get. you got to keep accountable too. But Emanuel only played like 31 snaps, like 51% of the defensive snaps. Maybe that's too much, but Adai isn't coming off the field at all. And with all the mistakes he's making, that's the bigger problem for me. Yeah, you know, Emmanuel played 31 snaps, which was up from the last each of the last two weeks. But I think that was a team-specific game plan. They were expecting a lot of running plays, and they had him on the field specifically to stop the run on first and second down, which is why he played so much. They hardly played any nickel. Uh, Des King was hardly on the field at all on Sunday. So that was a game plan thing. But they still continue to put him out there, even though they know that he can't cover anybody. And it's not his fault he can't cover anybody. Again, it's a coaching thing. For with both players, it's a coaching thing. But at what point do you say, okay, we've tried it. It's not working. We have to make a change. And, you know, you mentioned Adai. You know, he is a – he his his best role Be nice. on this team. <laughs> Be nice. His best role – no, I'm trying to – I was going to say he's a free safety, and I don't even really think he's a free safety. He is a linebacker playing free safety, which is why he's excelled playing closer to the line of scrimmage. Because Strong safety? A strong safety, excuse me. Yeah. He's a linebacker playing strong safety, and that's why he's excelled, quote-unquote, excelled in that role because he's playing closer to the line of scrimmage. He can come downhill and make tackles and be physical. But if you've already determined that Derwin James, as a rookie four games into his career, is a better strong safety than Jalil Adai, which I think we all agree yeah. he is. They're not wrong about that, yeah. They're not wrong about that. That's a that's a proper analysis, encouraging player evaluation. Yep. They got that right, okay? Mm-hmm. But if you determine that Jalil Adai's best role is as the strong safety, but Derwin James is a better strong safety, the answer is not... Let's take a guy who can't run, can't tackle in space, and can't cover any ground and move him 20 yards off the ball and expect him to be instinctive and know what to do and respond. That is not the answer. So the coaches are absolutely playing him in a position for which he is – I mean to say he's ill-suited for the role is a vast understatement. I mean we we said it when this talk started in training camp. This is not his role. And they talk about Derwin and and Jaleel being – interchangeable and Jaleel can play both positions. You know what? Four games in, that's bullshit. They can't play. Jaleel cannot play both positions and they are not interchangeable in the least. So if he's not good enough to keep his, his strong safety spot over Derwin James, 
he should not be on the field because he is a liability at free safety. He is not good enough, not athletic enough, not smart enough. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying if you watch him on tape, he has no freaking clue what he's supposed to be doing out there, and he has no idea where the ball is or what he what's going on around him. And that it's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. You know, when he's coming down from the line of scrimmage on that first t- towards the line of scrimmage on that first touchdown, like you mentioned. That's a dumb football play. He has no chance of making that tackle before the ball gets to the end zone, assuming the ball gets handed off. That's what linebackers are for. You're on that back line of that end zone. Your job is to make sure nobody gets past you, and you vacate your spot, and you hang your corner out to dry. That's a dumb play. Then you've got him playing the hokey pokey or doing whatever the hell he's doing on that pass to George Kittle. I mean, two steps in, two steps out, back to the quarterback, no idea where the ball is. He's, his back is still to the quarterback when Kittle releases it or when Kittle catches it. And then he takes a terrible angle, looks like a deer in headlights, like he has no idea how to take on a, a tight end in, in space in the open field. And then as soon as Kittle gets by him, he's gone because he can't catch him from behind. Just That's a tight end. Dumb. Yeah, that's a tight yeah. end. And granted, he runs a, I think he runs a four, five, three, forty. So he's not a slow tight end. No. But it's still a tight end. Mm-hmm. You should be able to chase him down from behind. Yeah. And to be that indecisive and that unsure of yourself and really just get spun around out there by yourself 20 yards off the ball, it's just not a smart football play. It just shows that he doesn't understand what's being asked of him and he doesn't know what's going on out there. So I agree. They can't have him out there anymore. So it's time to start to figure something else out, whether it's Sean, um, Adrian Phillips, whether it's uh, Rayshon Jenkins, whoever it may be, somebody needs to start getting some snaps out there to see if they can fix that because you can't have somebody who can't tackle back there and you damn sure can't have somebody who can't find the ball back there. That's his his two jobs, find the ball, make sure, or three jobs, I guess, find the ball, make sure it doesn't get over your head and make a tackle and he can't do any of them. So what's he doing back there? Yeah, Adrian Phillips is a good call too. Adrian Phillips, Rayshon Jenkins, and Adrian Phillips has had a pretty good game on special teams. He's looked pretty good in spurts. Had the interception in Buffalo. Why, I mean, why not reward a guy like that rather than keep running Julio Die out there? Yeah, and maybe maybe you just design certain packages where he's a, a nickel or a dime linebacker um, just to get him closer to the line of scrimmage with James and see if that helps build his confidence and get him going. But to have him play every single snap at free safety is just not working. All right, so I'll uh, I'll move on to an, another one, and uh, I'm sure this is part of yours too because we both kind of talked about it. But I think the Chargers might have something here in uh, moving Damian Square to end. You got to give the the coaching staff credit. You know they realize Isaac Rochelle and Chris Landrum just hasn't worked in Joey Bosa's absence so far. So they kicked Damian Square out to end. Square had the best game of any of those guys, uh, any of those backup defensive ends. So that's been great. He looked good on Sunday. And, you know, obviously you talked about it. He, that's, that's his position. He's better suited for it, but he looked natural holding the edge, uh, made some really good run stops. They kicked him inside. Um, what stood out the most was, um, how explosive he looked as a pass rusher. And I, you know, explosive for Damian Square, at least. Um, there's one play in particular at the beginning of the second quarter where Square came flying through the B gap. He was, basically untouched, and he unloaded on C.J. Beathard as he was throwing, forced an incompletion. He led all D linemen in tackles, was fourth on the team in tackles on Sunday. He also got his hand on the ball on one of them where it basically hit Denzel Perryman in the hands, and it just clanked off his hands. It would have been an easy interception, but uh, very good from Square on Sunday. And with Corey Legit coming back, uh, who will you know be playing the three-tech now, 
kicking Damian Square out to end more makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that was a, a very smart move by the coaching staff. You know, we've ripped on um, on uh, Gus Bradley for not making adjustments, not adjusting his personnel. This was a very good personnel adjustment for, just from the standpoint of, you know, you get him out on the edge. A lot of times it was he and Kyle Emanuel on the strong side of the defense together, and they were just resetting the line of scrimmage, driving guys back into the backfield against the run. Uh, he was he looked very explosive as an interior rusher. He and Rochelle and Justin Jones at times got a lot of push on second and third down in passing situations, driving the interior of the San Francisco offensive line into C.J. Beathard's lap. Uh, and a lot of the pressure that they generated – Forced to quick, forced some quick throws and some errant throws at times, and and ended drives. There was one in particular where Square got some good push and forced a throw away in the red zone to force a field goal, where it looked like the Niners were going to end a long drive with a touchdown. So Square played extremely well. He is much better suited to playing defensive end than defensive tackle. And I mentioned it earlier. I think he's been even before they moved him to defensive end. I feel like he's been the second best defensive lineman on the team so far. And he's been he's been very good. So we've he's kind of taken some some flack from us on this show at times over the years, but he's playing a lot and he's earning his snaps and making the most of his opportunities this year. So good on him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so hope to see more square at end going forward with Joey Bosa out. Definitely. So what else you got? So you kind of stole half my thunder ah. here. You mentioned square. I was going to also <laughs> mention Tavis Brown st- setting up, stepping up. At the at the will linebacker spot with Kaiser White injured, so Detavis Brown looked as good as I can remember him looking, probably since early in his rookie year. He was very decisive in his reads, both against the run and the pass. He was coming downhill. I saw there he made a, a handful of run stops, led the team in tackles. I believe he had a PBU. Uh, Gus Bradley blitzed him on several occasions and had some success with that. So Square and Brown both stepped up in a big way and kind of helped settle down the front seven a little bit with some key players missing. So both those guys I thought played very well. Yeah. One I'll throw out there, and uh, it, it's basically the special teams as a whole, and it was so up and down on Sunday. Um, we saw Des King has been the Chargers' best returner this whole time. Who knew it? They wouldn't throw him back there, but here we go. He provided a real spark in the return game. Should have ran one back if not for the punter tripping him, which I don't know why that wasn't called, or the late hit that followed it, but whatever. Uh, King had 82 yards on four returns. The kick that he almost took to the house was with 30 seconds left before the half, and by all accounts, without that the return, the Chargers probably would have just sat on the ball for 15 seconds, let it run out, and they would have been down three at halftime. So, you know, Des King really helped set up this team with good field position a few times on Sunday. And then you've got the same old story, same verse, same as the first. Chargers have a kicking problem again. Caleb Sturgis misses the 54-yard field goal, which you, you touched on earlier. He missed both extra points. That's the third missed extra point this season, three in the last two games. It's his second missed field goal this season. And then now we're going to have to go through the drama of everybody asking, are they trying out new kickers, and they'll bring in new kickers, and will they play him, won't they play him, how long of a leash does Caleb Sturgis have? We got to go through that whole drama again, but um, something that you know kind of went unnoticed was how good the coverage units were on Sunday, both punt and kick return. Absolutely, D- and DJ Reed 
is a top five returner this year. He's been very good, and they forced a fumble. That's the second forced fumble for Michael Davis this year. He had the one in Buffalo. Neither of the ones the Chargers recovered, but uh, got two turnovers in uh, on special teams. And to be honest, there were like two or three balls that kind of spurred out at the end while the returners were going down that were almost fumbles. Uh, they were really aggressive, and you know they haven't really been good this year, the coverage units, but they did their job and then some against the 49ers. So the special teams were all over the place, but there were some few bright spots outside of Caleb Sturgis on Sunday. I think for the most part, the special teams were pretty good with the exception of Caleb Sturgis. Right. Yeah. I mean, you met, you mentioned the return, the return, the coverage teams, uh, that the coverage teams have been much better since Craig Mager, who was being used as the primary gunner over Michael Davis in the first game got hurt. And Michael Davis took back his rifle spot on special teams. Now you've got Davis making plays. You've got Eckler making plays. You've got Nuosu laying the wood making plays in coverage. Those, those coverage teams are completely different just in terms of look and production than they were three weeks ago. And as much as it's easy to pile on George Stewart for not making changes and not making adjustments and being inept, and in a lot of ways he still is, he's made some good personnel decisions and he's got those coverage teams playing at a much higher level. Not that there isn't still room for improvement, but they are playing much better and it's encouraging to see them get better seemingly week by week after that terrible first week against the chiefs. So I agree with you on that. That was not one of my headlines, but it's something I mentioned on Twitter. I feel much better about where they are in terms of their coverage units uh, now than I did after the chiefs game. They look much better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So what, what else you got? I have two more. Um, so one of them is, and you kind of mentioned it with Des King. I'm just going to tack on to it a little bit. Uh, personnel adjustments on on defense and on special teams that paid dividends. One, Des King with the punt returns. Two, getting Michael Davis on the on the coverage teams and seeing Davis and Eckler and Nuosu start to make plays in that regard. Square at base end and, def- and the base defense. Square and Rochelle kicking inside in sub packages and providing interior pressure when they weren't really getting much off the edge. We saw some some more of Nuosu at end in sub packages. Still not really enough snaps, but they're getting him on when he has an opportunity to rush the passer and bring him along slowly. And we even saw more snaps for Justin Jones in the three at the three technique in the base defense. And all of these changes, all of these guys made plays or contributed to making plays on some level at different points in the game. So those I thought were all very important personnel adjustments for a coaching staff that we were very critical of last week for not making adjustments. So kudos to them for those adjustments. Okay. I'll throw another one out there. Um, now that we're just talking, uh, and I'm probably going to steal it. I, I hope not since I stole the other ones, but, uh, how about Melvin Gordon on Sunday, huh? He was not one of mine, but he had a great game. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, there was a lot of complaining that, you know, Austin Eckler only had one carry going, you know, through two quarter, the first two quarters. But, you know, with the way that Melvin Gordon was playing, it's hard not to ride the hot hand. You know, he was running angry. He was breaking tackles. He was making a lot of impressive plays. And I was complaining for the first three weeks, like, hey, listen, Austin Eckler has been great. And then you go away from him. Why not ride the hot hand and go with Austin Eckler until it doesn't work? Well, Melvin Gordon was doing so well. Why not just keep rolling with it? And that's what they did on Sunday. Now, I, you know, if it, if the roles were reversed, they probably not given Eckler as many touches as they did Gordon. But 
he was excellent on the ground, very good in the passing game too, and he ran, he ran really hard and he earned that time. So for those that were kind of complaining, like, why not more snaps for Reckler? Look, Gordon was really, I, I almost said remarkable. He wasn't remarkable, but he was very good on Sunday <laughs> against the 49ers and made the most of almost all of his touches. Yeah, you know, I made a comment on Twitter during the game about midway through the fourth quarter. It, just with the way he was running, it seemed to me that Melvin Gordon was trying to take the game over and he was doing everything in his power to single-handedly win that game with the way he was running the ball. And you said it, running angry, running over people, running through people, refusing to go out of bounds, refusing to get tackled. Uh, he was he was really good. And credit to Wiz, too, for putting him in a position to succeed. They called a lot of pass plays to get the ball in his hands quickly out in space and give him a chance to get upfield. And they also did a really good job of finding one staple running play that the 49ers could not stop and just running it back and forth to the wide side of the field repeatedly. I think they ran it five or six times. They had that that off-tackle play where they had Tyrell Williams come across the formation and lead be the lead blocker and take out the, the corner on that side of the field. Yep. They, re- they just kept running that play over and over and over again, and Tyrell Williams did a great job doing the little things in that game, making key blocks. For Melvin Gordon, there was, a, I think, a 34-yard run in the fourth quarter that set up a touchdown. He either set up a touchdown or a field goal, but it was it was Gordon's longest run, and uh, Tyrell had two blocks on that drive, on that on that play. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very good. He had a one really bad passer up where Rivers was trying to hit him on third down, and he had no idea where the ball was. But outside of that, he made some heads-up plays, made that 50-50 catch uh, down the sideline, and made some great blocks for Gordon. So. Yeah. Gordon looked great. Tyrell Williams made some major co- contributions to that to that running game as well. Um, my last one, and I'm surprised you haven't hit it, being that I I think it's a gimme. But as Derwin as the closer or the eraser. Oh yeah. Um, uh-huh. You know, I mean, it seemed it seemed like Gordon and Derwin were the guys that took that game over in a game where Rivers was good, not great, but pretty good. And the rest of the defense is having its issues. Derwin just made play after play after play. You know, he tipped the pass on the interception in the red zone that wound up in Trevor Williams' hands. Uh, he's the one who obviously ended the game with the, I don't know what, what you want to call it, sack fumble, or, you know, he hit CJ Beathard from behind while he was trying to throw the ball and the ball just fell into Isaac Rochelle's hands. Uh, he was all over the place, both in the passing game, as a blitzer, in the running game. I think he led the team in tackles. He had a couple PBUs, had a sack, a couple tackles for loss, and obviously the big play at the end. And, you know, for him to close the game out the way he did, I think he, honestly, I think he bailed out the coaching staff for punting the ball at the end of the game when they should have been going for it on fourth down. I think that that decision was probably the worst decision they made in the game, and Derwin saved them and bailed them out. So kudos to Derwin. Yeah. Derwin has, yeah, he has been absolutely on fire. And uh, glad they didn't mess around with that and keep trying to switch, you know, Derwin in a die and do do monkey around with that. Like Having him where he's at now, closer line of scrimmage, sending him on blitz, he's doing good in the run game. Uh, and he's been pretty good in coverage too. So, yeah, all around been excellent so far. Uh, they practically lined him up as an outside linebacker on several plays yeah. and sent him on the blitz. I mean, they're just – they're just daring offensive linemen to block him, and they're not getting it done. I just love the way they're moving him around and giving him a chance to make plays and be aggressive. And I cannot wait till Joey Bosa comes back. And having Bosa, Ingram, and Derwin James is going to be fun to watch. 
after the buy. Knock on wood. Yeah, knock on wood. Hopefully after the buy. So, Provided it happens. <laughs> yeah. So that'll do it for us. Thanks, guys. Episode 158. That's it. I am at Garrisisti on Twitter. Jamie? At Lightning underscore round. And we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Hello, you're listening to Simone de Rochefort, one of the hosts of The Polygon Show. It's a show all about the video games that you'll never have time to play, brought to you by four friends who are just as passionate about food, soft drinks, and TV shows as we are about video games. Every Friday, we bring you a new hour of personal stories, like how we found the best way to play Yakuza 0, or even what happens when you play so much Zelda that you hurt your hands and can't play games anymore. Above all, we just have a really good time talking about the games that we love. Check out the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find us at Polygon Show on Twitter and send a tweet to say hi. Thanks for listening.